Welcome to The Human Perspective, a podcast with the internationally recognized badass disability rights activist, Judy Human. This episode, Judy interviews Brandon Farbstein. Brandon is a public speaker, activist, and author. Judy and Brandon discuss their many shared experiences of public speaking, Judaism, theater, writing, and more. Brandon also shares the personal stories that led him to where he is today and why his work centers around elevating empathy. Before continuing, please be advised that the content of this episode includes conversations involving suicide, bullying, anti-Semitism, and PTSD. The Human Perspective is produced by me, Kylie Miller, and Judy Human. So let's roll up, lay down, dance around, whatever makes you feel best, and let's meet this episode's guest. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Human Perspective. Today, I'm happily uh, going to be talking with Brandon Farbstein, who I have been learning about more over the last couple of months and thought that he would be great to invite to our program. So welcome, Brandon. Nice to see you here. Thank you so much for having me on, Judy. Where are you living now? Since September, I've been living in San Diego, California, which is such a new thing for me because I've spent all of my life on the East Coast, specifically in Virginia. And being in Southern California has been just so amazing the last few months. Yeah, I lived for about 18 years in Berkeley, California and came back to the East Coast, originally in Brooklyn, as people know, and now in Washington, D.C. Tell me a little bit about your growing up in Virginia, your family in particular. How many siblings do you have? I have one sister. She's two and a half years older than me. And I'm the only one in my family to have my disability or really any disability. And so that was quite a surprise to my parents. It wasn't discovered when I was born, but at my two-year checkup, when my mom brought up the fact that I wasn't growing at the same rate as my sister. But from the very beginning, my parents have been my superheroes and my biggest supporters. And I truly owe so much of who I am to what they taught me and how they allowed me to grow up because they didn't shield me from the outside world or what other people, maybe their reactions being negative or saying comments that were making fun of me, whatever that might have been. They helped me understand, though, that it was up to me how I perceive the experience and also how I react. So it took a lot of me feeling like I was beaten down and not having a lot of self-esteem or confidence to them really helping me get the professional help that I needed and advocating with me, supporting me through it all. And really my entire family has been just incredible throughout the journey of life. So what is or what are your disabilities? When you were two years old, what did the doctor let your mother know? So it took actually about six months of quite a lot of testing from MRIs to a lot of blood work and CT scans. And six months later, I believe it was the genetic lab out of UCLA came back with a diagnosis of an extremely rare form of dwarfism called metatropic dysplasia. And at the time, there was barely anything known about it. It was written about pretty lightly in medical literature 
there weren't really any other cases to compare it to. There certainly at the time wasn't a community that we knew about. And so my parents felt very isolated from the get-go without having any answers and just the amount of uncertainty that was within having such a rare condition and going to different doctors and specialists asking what we could expect. And there just were no answers. We had to navigate that for ourselves in a lot of ways. But I really am grateful that they helped me see the fact that if you don't necessarily have an answer that is right there waiting for you, you can innovate your own solution and find what works best. And that's exactly what we have done from the beginning. That did not, though, in any way prevent the mental health aspect of things becoming very prominent. And that really was the case at about 11 years old. So maybe we could talk a little bit about what happened in that time period between when you were two and 11. You know, like you have a disability, different disability, but mine was also very early and was probably identified before you were identified. (laughs) And so, you know, as a kid, I didn't relate to disability at all when I was like, two or three years old, I didn't really start seeing that I was being treated differently until I was around five or six. But when you were five or six, you went to school and you went to regular classes, right? Yes, I did. So for the audience, how tall are you now? I am currently about three foot nine or three ten on a good day. (laughs) Okay. So when you were young and you were in kindergarten, you were probably not shorter than the other kids in the class. Exactly. It didn't become too prominent, I would say, until maybe the second or third grade. Right. When the peers started getting taller and taller. And then that's when the teasing and things like that, where I really noticed how different I was from those around me, that became very prominent. And so I presume that was really the time, because it's true for many of us around that age, that we start noticing that people are looking at us differently and maybe speaking to us differently. So how did that make you feel? And how did that impact you as you began to notice that you were not growing the same as others and being treated differently? The more and more that I realized I wasn't like the kids around me, I think I had a sense of resentment that started to build because I so desperately wanted to be just like them and to fit in and do sports and all the average things that the peers around me were doing. And I never really felt like I had that sense of acceptance or belonging. And with that, I didn't have a lot of friends growing up. So I found myself needing to work extra hard to kind of find my people and find those that I could relate to, especially, which always from the get-go is really difficult. And I think that's because I've always been on a bit of an advanced timeline when it comes to my sense of emotional intelligence. And that has definitely gotten me pretty far, but it's also uh, bitten me in the butt quite a few times when I thought that I was better than my peers, especially at like the elementary or middle school age, because I just had a a sense of maturity to me that they didn't seem to have, but it made me very angry. What were you angry about? I was just angry at life. I was honestly angry at the world. I was angry at God for me being born. And I 
had that continue to build and build up until I reached 11. So what happened to you when you were 11? I found myself coming home from school and I just had a a really crappy day and I don't remember anything specifically triggering me, but I walked in the door and it was just my mom home at the time. And I said to her, I can't do this anymore. There's no point to me living and I'm going to go kill myself. And I basically stormed up the stairs and slammed the door to my room. And she was just 30 seconds behind me, but I got a belt and was nearly wrapping it around my neck when she stopped me. And basically we stood there hugging for about 10 minutes. And that really was the catalyst for me starting counseling and therapy and getting out of this really deep hole that I found myself in and I didn't know how to get out. And so I think by me saying I wanted to die, it was basically saying I just wanted the pain to stop. And that turning point was so huge to really get out of my own way in a lot of the capacity where I was making the experience so much worse for myself. Yes, I was getting uh, teased or bullied or whatever, but I was perceiving it as being so much worse than it actually was because of just the state of my mental health, being so depressed and having this really bleak outlook. And so it took nearly, I mean, essentially being at the lowest point that I've ever been, wanting to die and thinking that there's no point in being me to getting the help that I needed, but also to discover a part of me that I didn't know existed, which was the fact that I could control my own thoughts and other people didn't need to dictate the life that I lived. That really was up to me. And so as a young teenager, I started building that skill and that sense of inner resilience to not allow these external things or people that were pummeling so much negativity on me, though it still had a big effect, it didn't stop me from continuing to live my life. I mean, communication is something that obviously over your life has been something that you've been drawn towards, communicating your message. And I'm wondering if at this low period of time in your life, whether that also enabled you to begin to communicate how you were feeling to other people. Absolutely. And it it gave me the ability to not only express it, but put words to such complicated feelings and thoughts that I perceived no one else could understand or were too large for me to even tackle. And so that's where therapy and honestly finding the right counselor to begin with. It took six different counselors over a course of, I believe, eight months to finally find one that I was not only comfortable with, but felt seen and heard by, which was incredibly important. And just the ability to reframe a lot of thoughts that were limiting the way that I was honestly just living my life because they were so persistent. They wouldn't go away that I wasn't good enough or I'm too ugly or I'm never going to have any friends or whatever it was. Those eventually, because of therapy and counseling, 
were able to become manageable. And I'm really grateful for that. So I know that you've attended LPA meetings and I'm wondering when was your first LPA meeting? My first LPA event, I was nine years old and it was actually in Brooklyn, funny enough. All right, of course, yay, Brooklyn. (laughs) (laughs) So what has LPA meant to you? LPA, and for those that don't know, it stands for Little People of America. It's the predominant organization for those with dwarfism and their conferences attract thousands normally from every corner of the globe, every background, every lifestyle. And walking in for the first time to this hotel, I saw so many of me for the first time. And I had never felt such an overwhelming sense of acceptance and like, I belong here. These are my people, the people that can relate to me the most that I don't need to explain how I am living my life. And and I mean, listen, we weren't in each other's shoes, but in a lot of ways we could understand each other. And that was so powerful to walk into for the first time at nine years old, especially in a period of feeling like I was too different. And the sense of just finding my people was everything. And I am really blessed that I have a family that was able to bring me to opportunities like that and see that there is a true sense of community. And more importantly, though, I saw that I didn't need to allow my dwarfism or my disability or any of these things that I thought defined me. That wasn't who I was. It's a part of me. And it really was through LPA that I discovered that. Between the time that you were nine and 11, did you have friends who were little people or had other forms of disabilities? No, I maybe had a a couple of people that I knew here and there through LPA, but at the time I definitely wasn't close with anyone. So today, do you align yourself with disability rights organizations at all? Absolutely, I do. And uh, I recently came out as queer. So I also love to tie the two together and bring as much representation, as much visibility to people with disabilities as possible. When you were younger, your experience with Little People of America was very important to you because as you've described, it enabled you to meet so many people from all around the world who were like you. Today, you're also doing work with other disability organizations. Why is that important for you as a disabled person to be aligned with other groups? And what do you feel you're giving to the disability community as well as getting? I have gained so much from being plugged into and a part of the disability community. And it's honestly more of a a recent thing for me because I didn't used to consider myself a disability rights advocate or activist, but I definitely had that as a part of who I was, but not an intentional focus. And I don't think I fully understood the magnitude of disabled culture or the fact that we are even 15% of the world's population. I didn't know that until maybe three years ago. And actually it was through watching documentaries like Crip Camp Judy that I was able to really open my eyes because growing up, I wasn't really exposed to other people with disabilities other than LPA. And now that I have this purview to see the fact that there is such a need 
around the world for disability representation and disability rights on top of that. I want to do as much as I can to use any sort of visibility or platform that I have to bring that forward because there is so much work to be done. No matter where you look, there's definitely some countries and some companies, for example, that are doing a lot more than others. But to put it simply, there is so much more to be done. And that is what motivates me every day to want to show up in as many ways as possible for our community, with our community. And I also am learning every single day as well, which I'm, I'm, I'm honestly thankful for that because there's so much to be taught and learned within our community, whether it's our different lifestyles or the different disabilities that we have, the different access needs that we all have as well. And that is what will really allow us to work collaboratively and to co-create solutions for a better future for us all. You know, you, we're both from the Jewish community. Tell us a little bit about how Judaism has impacted your life. So I I always went to Hebrew school starting at maybe six or seven, though I didn't appreciate it. (laughs) I was always very annoyed with my parents, especially because I already felt so different. And so then I was feeling especially just not like I was included in anything because even then I didn't have a sense of community, even within the temple that we were a part of. I didn't really find friends there and that sort of thing. But what I did really appreciate is the values that my parents especially taught me through our people, through our culture. We have quite a few family members that died in the Holocaust on my mom's side. So that was always taught at a very young age. I remember understanding the power of family, why we need to be sources of light as much as possible and how Jews have opportunities to do that. Understanding the the Torah just in general and what it teaches us about living and showing up in the best ways. But again, I never really felt like I was a part of that or a part of the Jewish community in a meaningful way until I think I discovered theater. And it was through the local JCC. Jewish Community Center. Yeah. And they had a local community theater program. And at 10 years old, I was on stage for the first time in a musical. And that was through the Jewish Family Theater that they were doing. And that was the first time that I felt like I was a part of something and I was accepted, I was included. And also I was shining in ways that I hadn't felt like I had before. And so it was through discovering theater because of the Jewish community that I was able to find a sense of self and also a sense of community. And I would say maybe starting when I was 18, that I've been putting focus into my faith and into my relationship with God. And it doesn't necessarily have to be by following Shabbat every Friday night, but I found what my own sense of Judaism is. And it is definitely always a part of my identity and who I am. So do you remember the production? 
It was Oliver. <laughs> I was in My Fair Lady, also through my synagogue. I love it. <laughs> so we started doing our public speaking. That's very interesting. Yeah. Um, you were 15 when you did a TED Talk. Mm-hmm. When I saw your TED Talk, I was like, oh my God. I did a TED Talk, I was like 68. And I had obviously been doing a lot of public speaking before then. And I would say that the TED Talk was one of the more traumatizing experiences of my life. Oh yeah, big time. I was traumatizing because you had to get up, you had to know everything. It was different than being in a play. So I'm wondering what was your experience at 15? You're so poised, you come out on, uh, what do you call the device that you use? It's like a Segway. A Segway, sorry. And so you come out on your Segway, you get off the Segway and there you are. I thought, this guy is so poised and articulate. How did that come about? So really funny story. I was traveling in uh, the Richmond airport to visit my great-grandmother in Florida. And I was on that Segway mobility device which you'll see in the TEDx talk, it is like very attention grabbing. So it's bright yellow. It kind of is like a Lamborghini and transformer combination. So very high tech and that sort of thing. It drew a lot of attention, let's just say. And I was in line waiting for security with my family and a woman came up to me, saw me on this device and started asking all these questions. What is this cool device? What do you use it for? What's your name? Do you have a condition? What's that called? And she was just coming from a place of being very inquisitive. And that wasn't at all a new thing for me, but we spent maybe three or four minutes in line at security talking, but it turns out she ended up being on our flight. So when we got to the gate and sat down, we continued our conversation for maybe about another 40 minutes. And in that, she told me she was one of the original organizers to ever put on a TEDx conference. So I think number three or four in the world to ever put on one of these events. And when I heard that, I was so intrigued because I remember maybe six months prior to that, I had a conversation with my mom because we watched TED Talks all the time. And I said, how cool would it be to one day share my story on that platform? But I never really thought that I would have that capability or be presented with the opportunity or whatever. And it was through this woman just starting a a friendship, really, that she got me in the door of TEDxRDA, so Richmond, Virginia. And it was the local TEDx event, but a pretty big one. It had about 2,000 people that went every year and they took a chance on me. I was the very first teenager that they had speak. And (laughs) I'm really glad, Judy, that you brought up the fact that it is truly traumatizing in a lot of ways, because I'll give you all a little uh, inside light into this. The week before, it may have even been five days before I was set to give my talk, we had our dress rehearsal. And they gave me a coach uh, originally to help me kind of structure my talk and figure out what I wanted to say and how I wanted to say it while following the TED guidelines, which if you're not familiar with them, (laughs) it's quite something, but it's just unlike anything else in terms of giving a talk. And so I thought I created this really incredible, powerful, touching I thought it was there in this talk that the coach and I created. I gave it five days before the event and 
I was not told in the exact moment, but the event organizers were maybe about five minutes away from cutting me because they were so, I guess, unimpressed by what they saw from me. So I found that out. And in a matter of, I think, 15 minutes, thank God, this woman, Haley, who is the stranger I met in the airport, is also one of the top coaches for creating TED Talks. And literally at the 11th hour, she stepped in, became my coach, and helped me completely from scratch write a new talk in five days. And so here I was, 15 years old. I thought I was like so ready to go with what we created because we were at least a solid month out from the event when the talk was finalized. So I had plenty of time to rehearse my lines and make sure the delivery was right and the timing and all these things, utilizing my acting skills. But it really got me to see a a new perspective that I had never seen before and felt pressure that I don't think I'd felt before either. But I'm just incredibly blessed that she was somebody that stepped up for me in such an exponential way, because there is no way that I could have continued, or they would have even let me continue without having Haley's help. So I will forever be grateful for her support. So Brandon, you're an author, and we have a lot of things in common. And you have now had two books published. Could you briefly tell us what the titles of the books are, and why you decided you wanted to write the books? So the first book that I had come out is called 10 Feet Tall, and I released that when I was 18. And I wanted to share my story in a way that wasn't just writing a memoir per se about the experience that I've had in my life, because especially the fact that I was only 18 at the time, I didn't feel like I was ready for that. But I did want to share my story in a way that taught lessons and brought forth the tools and the things that that have kind of led me thus far. And that's exactly why I called it 10 feet tall, because it's a mindset, it's perspective, the power of that, how we can control the thoughts that we have and step into our truth. But then during the last two years, I've been putting a lot of thought into what I could put into the world that not only is really needed, but is not really talked about or taught. And what came out uh, kind of blazing in terms of the topic to write about was self-love, because it is one of those things, literally at any period of life, we need to have a grasp of in order to properly show up in the world, but also to show up for those that need us in a way to support them and genuinely love them. Because if we don't have that for ourselves, that foundation, it's incredibly hard to have that energy move forward in a genuine way. So by writing this book, not only for kids in a way that is universal and they're able to grasp. But the coolest feedback the last few months that it's been out is hearing from so many adults that have read the book with their kiddos or their students, and the fact that it's just as powerful for them as it is for the young ones. So I'm just really glad that this message in a time that it's testing us, it's testing our mental health. So having a sense of self-love now more than ever is so fundamentally important. And that is why I decided to release it during this time. 
You know, you have also contributed in many ways um, to areas that I think are cutting edge. One of them is the work that you've been doing in cyberbullying. And I'm wondering if you could give us a brief bit of information about why you got engaged in cyberbullying. What do you think is so important about this and a little bit about what it is you're actually doing? Absolutely. This came about the very first week of my freshman year of high school when I started using my mobility device for the first time. So as I previously described, it drew a lot of attention, especially when it came to my peers. Unfortunately, it was all the wrong types of attention because they thought it was a toy. And who is this kid who's coming into school and using this device that we don't get to use? Why does he get to leave class five minutes early? That's not fair. Just things like that. But unfortunately, it started with a tweet that included a video of me passing by somebody in the hall. It's maybe a four or five second video of me riding my Segway. And the caption said, the first person to punt the midget off the Segway gets $5. That must've made you feel, well, how did it make you feel? I can't even imagine. That was the third or fourth day of high school for me. So it was devastating in every sense of the word because all I wanted were friends and my new peers at school to just accept me for me and not perceive me as this. uh, They called me constantly on social media, the kid on the Segway. They never got the time to know me for me. They never really took the opportunity for that. And the social media incidents that started coming my way were more and more frequent. I would get, let's say, a bunch of Instagram notifications and open up Instagram and see that there was an entire account created for the sole purpose of harassing and degrading me, taking not only pictures and images from my own social media, but also my TED talk, putting it with anti-Semitic rhetoric and Hitler behind me. It was disgusting. How did the um, school or school district respond to this? When I brought the first incident to them, that tweet, They claimed that they were taking care of it. There was a zero tolerance policy for any sort of bullying, which was absolute BS. So I, of course, had some level of tolerance to what would come my way. The minutiae, I should say. I didn't let a lot of the stupid little comments or things that weren't a big deal. I didn't bring that to the administration and I did my best to ignore it. That didn't necessarily mean it was numb, and, and I was numb to what I was going through, but I tried to, on the outside, ignore it. But when it got to a place of then receiving death threats from the peers at my school, what started from, I believe, an email I received uh, sophomore year of high school saying, Midget, if you don't kill yourself, I'm going to shank you in the kidney on Thursday. And... That unfortunately was the start of quite a few threats to follow, where I was told uh, on multiple occasions to kill myself because nobody will ever love me and I'm the ugliest thing that they've ever seen, to what was, I think, one of the scariest that I got was either on email or another social media platform that said, if you don't kill yourself, I'm going to put an IED and they described the type of car that I had in my driveway, it just got to a point of having PTSD because I literally did not know 
who were behind the threats or the social media comments or whatever it was I was getting. And I genuinely didn't know if it was coming from the person sitting next to me in Spanish class. And that messed with my head so much that it just boiled over junior year where I had another incident with Instagram and another account that again was created and it was followed by students from my school. And some of them were peers that I was in class with. And I messaged a couple of them and I asked, why are you following this account? Do you realize how hurtful it is? And the response I remember getting back, I thought this was your fake Instagram. They thought I was behind the account, which absolutely blows my mind because how could somebody say that sort of vile rhetoric about themselves? Are you still actively involved in cyberbullying, fighting against it and speaking up and out about bullying? I am. So the advocacy really started after that whole experience. And I left that high school environment and continued the rest online. But it was then that I discovered by my work only taking about 30 minutes a day that I had all of this time to then share my story and not sit idly because that was what I didn't want to let happen. My story and the experience that my family had just had the last two and a half years with getting no support from the school system, no support from the police when we brought the threats to them, didn't want to let this experience happen to, I know the countless other students and families that were going through something similar. And I said to my parents, what can we do with what we just went through. And we had a family friend who was a state lawmaker at the Virginia General Assembly. And we shared with her kind of everything that went down. And she also was familiar just by being a friend of ours, the experience that I was having. And she looked at the Virginia law, which at the time was totally outdated when it came to anything social media related. It was all like instant messaging and email and things like that, which was not at all applicable in 2017 when people are using Instagram and Snapchat and things like that. So we were able to testify, I believe, seven or eight times within a two-year span and got two pieces of legislation passed. The first, which requires school administrators to alert parents within five days of any bullying incident. One of those things, kind of scratching your head, why does that need to be a law? But unfortunately, it does. We saw firsthand that administrators aren't necessarily motivated to reach out to parents unless something pretty dire is happening. But that sometimes too late. And I saw that again with my family. But the one law that I'm especially proud of is the work that we did on social and emotional learning curriculum, where across every public classroom in Virginia, K through 12, they are learning about empathy, personal boundaries, and age-appropriate social and emotional learning. And that really stemmed from sharing this story, sharing this experience of being so viciously cyberbullied and me believing that the root cause of it is truly an empathy problem. These teenagers not understanding the power of their words and the power of their actions fundamentally, that it could be something that could raise somebody up and make them feel amazing about themselves or the complete opposite where they then hurt themselves or others. And that's the reality of 
cyberbullying and social media and all of these things. And so what I've really been focused on is continuing to share that experience so that other young people facing similar know that it does get better and that they're not alone. But also the fact that we can't necessarily put a, a blanket over the fact that bullying is always going to be a thing. It exists in every community, I believe in every country, every school, that sort of thing. It is a part of human behavior. But that doesn't mean that we cannot do quite a lot of work to put resources in place from a mental health standpoint. And again, teaching empathy, modeling what it means to be an empathetic person, not just towards other people, but towards yourself first and foremost. And it's uh, it's just so important. Right. So I'm really sorry to say that this really powerful discussion needs to come to an end right now because we're wrapping up our time. But I want to thank you so very much for really being so personal and sharing, I know, very difficult aspects of your life, which at the age of 22, you're really turning into powerful messages. But if it's okay, I would like to end on a little fun note. Could you tell me something that the audience doesn't know about who you are? That's the side of you, which has fun. Yes. So I kind of alluded to this in the beginning by saying I went uh, on stage in my first musical at 10 years old, but something that most people don't know about me, I have a pretty good singing voice and I have been told it is, uh, it's quite spectacular, but I use my voice now in different ways, but it's, it's something that I always kind of have in my back pocket. And I think it would be really fun to somehow incorporate singing into a keynote. So we'll see. <laughs> well, I know that you have broad aspirations. So as someone who studied voice for 10 years, I encourage you to get a voice teacher and start really seriously focusing on it. But who knows what could be ahead of you as far as something in television or coming back to the East Coast on Broadway or theater. <laughs> that would be cool. It's been great to talk with you, Brandon, and I really look forward to working with you in the future. Thank you. Me too, Judy. Thank you so much for having me on. Now it's time for Ask Judy, a segment where Judy answers questions sent in by listeners. I'm so happy that we just interviewed Brandon. Yeah. He has done a lot of work for being 22 years old. He really has learned a lot. He's shared a lot. He's put himself out in the public. And I think the program we just did really also uh, shares vulnerable parts of himself. Absolutely. And I think that is one of the reasons why I respect, you know, the work he's doing and where he's going. Right. And as someone who's also 22, I was a little bit embarrassed by all that he's accomplished. <laughs> he's really putting a lot of competition out there for other young people. That's a great point, but you're doing great. <laughs> but that leads me great into the question that was sent in for this episode for Ask Judy, sent in on Twitter from at Ann Fox Davidson. They asked, I'd love to know what you would most like this generation of disability activists to learn from your story. That you need to know your story. And my story has been evolving. You know, as you know, I'm 74 years old. So I've really been incrementally telling my story as I've gotten older and had more things to tell. And I've always felt that it's important, particularly for those of us with disabilities, not only to be able to discuss 
many of the barriers that we face and discrimination that we face, but also to look at how we resolve it, even if it's not an immediate resolution. So if we look at laws like Section 504 or the Americans with Disabilities Act, or not a law at all, but just something that you've been doing in your community, I think being able to try to overcome being embarrassed, being angry, being ashamed, and really integrating those stories into deeds and words that you have, that's what I think is important. Because you pull together other people who have similar experiences, it allows people to also build on those experiences and create plans of action, like what needs to happen. So don't be ashamed. And I think as your years go by, you will be able to look back on accomplishments, learn from the successes and failures, and move forward and keep going, ultimately making life better for you and the millions of disabled people around the world. That's great. Thank you, Judy. And thank you, Ann Fox from Davidson College for sending us that question. If you're listening and you would like to ask Judy a question for a future episode, you can send it to media at judithhuman.com or via Instagram and Twitter on Judy's accounts. Thanks for tuning in to The Human Perspective. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also follow Judy on Twitter at Judith Human and on Instagram and Facebook at The Human Perspective. If you want to find out more information about this episode's guest or resources relating to the discussion, check out the description of this episode or visit judithhuman.com. You can also find a shortened video version of this interview on Judy's YouTube channel, dropping a week after this podcast is published. Otherwise, be sure to check back every other Wednesday for a new podcast episode. The intro music for The Human Perspective is Dragon, which is produced and performed by Lachi, Yontero, and Warren. The outro music is I Wait by Galen Lee.